Let's open our Bibles to the ninth chapter of Acts and quickly and briefly consider the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I thank the four patriarchs that read to us Acts 22, the first 21 verses, Acts 26, 9 through 20, Galatians 1, 11 through 24, and 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I hope that you can see that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was a pretty major event in the New Testament and thus repeated several times. And Acts chapter 9 is the more extensive account of it given by Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles to Theophilus and here introduces us to this great apostle, our apostle, the apostle of the Gentiles, that the Lord Jesus Christ converted. The chapter has some information about Peter at the end of it in the last 12 verses where he heals Aeneas and Dorcas he raises from the dead. In verse 31, there's a wonderful one-verse summary of how churches are multiplied. But up to that 31st verse, the first 30 verses are about our brother Paul. Do not be confused about Saul or Paul, his two names. I will probably use them back and forth just because it's hard to keep them consistently separate. They change in Acts chapter 13 and verse 9 when the apostle is on his first evangelistic trip and his Hebrew name Saul, which would not do him much good among the Gentiles and Romans, is changed to the Roman name of Paul. And you're told that in 13.9 in parentheses by Luke, who explains the change. You have heard from Acts 22 and Acts 26, the other two accounts of Paul's conversion. And so we have light on Acts 9 already before we begin. You may hold your place there, and let's turn back over to Galatians chapter 1, and let me briefly point out something there. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, But when it pleased God... And those words apply to the 16th verse. To reveal His Son in me, because that's what He's describing as His conversion and ordination to the ministry. But when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I didn't go get help from anyone. I got it from the Lord. Now what else is in verse 15 tells you how long that God had had His plans on Paul for the ministry, who separated me from my mother's womb. The apostle is not telling the churches of Galatia that God was involved in his childbirth, separating me from my mother's womb. He is describing his ordination to the ministry that from conception and gestation, he was going to be God's man. God had put his hand upon him and separated him from, from conception and called me by his grace, called him to the ministry. He is not talking about his salvation, regeneration, or anything else right here. 
He's talking about his ordination and appointment to the ministry. God had his eyes on Saul of Tarsus all along. And that shouldn't surprise us, because Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1, that God had chosen him, that is Saul of Tarsus, in Christ Jesus before the world began to save him by predestinated adoption through Jesus Christ to be his child and had made him accepted in the beloved in Christ while Paul had made no such acceptation of Jesus Christ. If we come over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the fourth passage that was read to us by our brother, I want to point out something here. We, are, we do not know exactly when Saul of Tarsus was regenerated. He was not regenerated on the road to Damascus. He was already serving God by killing Christians. You say, that confuses me. I said it that way to see if it might. Because I want you to think. Everyone else believes that Saul of Tarsus was saved on the Damascus road. But I want to show you what Paul says by inspiration about himself. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Saul of Tarsus was put into the ministry on the Damascus road, but up to that point, God already counted Saul of Tarsus faithful. Well, what did he do to be faithful? He persecuted Christians, but he did it zealously above them all. He kept the law of Moses above them all because he was ignorant in unbelief about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He would say later under inspiration when he was on trial that he had served God with a pure conscience from his fathers. From childhood, he had served the Lord as diligently as he understood. God counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry. That means his faithfulness came before ministry. But now his faithfulness was only to Jehovah as he understood him. And he denied that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ of God. So look at the next verse. Well, it's not the next verse. It's the next after the next. Verse 13 tells us who was before. This is when God looked at my works, and though they were terrible, they were done with the best of intentions. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. God overlooked that foolish wickedness on my part because I didn't know better. Gamaliel hadn't taught me Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. If you ever believe on Jesus Christ, it is because of God's grace. It is not to get God's grace. If you ever love the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't bring you God's grace. It is because of God's grace. Do you see that in the the 14th verse? And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That abundant grace of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ that came on Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus is what gave him his great faith and love so that he would say, What wilt thou have me to do? And he went and did it. And he went and did it diligently and zealously for the rest of his life. We often, in trying to explain the five phases of salvation to people who have never thought very deeply about the word saved in the New Testament, we often ask the question, when was Paul saved? If you go to their evangelistic services, they ask, do you know when you were saved? And if you don't know when you were saved, then you ought to get up out of your seats and come forward to the altar and make sure of it today. As if that does anything about your eternal destiny. When was Paul saved? Well, Paul said, and I've already quoted it once, Second Timothy 1, nine, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. Then, in the passage that we just looked at, he said, For this purpose Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So we've got two phases of salvation already. One was before the foundation of the world. One was 4,000 years after the foundation of the world when Jesus died on the cross. Then Paul would say in Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There's a third phase. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit sometime during our lives. Then, Paul would write Timothy and say, Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things. Taking heed to your personal life and taking heed to your ministerial doctrine. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So Paul said, I'm in the process of being saved by being faithful to keeping my body under and being devoted to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. He was in the process of it, but he used the word saved. And then if you turn to Romans 13, Paul would say, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So he would tell you he wasn't saved yet. Because it was only nearer. And, and we love the Word of God because it tells us five phases of salvation. We have election in the eternal phase before the world began. We have the legal redemptive price that was paid for us on the cross of Calvary by making it all possible by Jesus shedding His blood for us. We have to have our natures changed and it is by the new birth sometime during our lives. Then... We, by obeying the gospel and taking heed to walk a holy life, are converted. That means changed to look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ by our active obedience. And yet, brethren, the greatest phase of salvation is yet to come right. when we're going to be wholly glorified in the presence of God. Our bodies changed, our old man gone, and we'll be forever with the Lord Amen. in five phases. But you know, if you just want to play with sound bites and talk about when were you saved. A person that asks that question doesn't have a clue about the New Testament. Because you need to ask them, what salvation are you talking about? Well, let's go to Romans 9, and in a few minutes, review the great conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He was elected before the world began, 
justified at the cross of Calvary, regenerated sometime before this road because he was already serving God faithfully, but he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Amen. 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 Do you know the greatness of the conversion, the ordination, and the gospel of this great man of God for us Gentiles? I want you to be thankful for God raising up a man like this for us. He's not our Savior, but in an elect, in an election way or an eternal way or legal way or vital way, but he sure is in the gospel that he gave us in the epistles to the Gentiles. Do you like history? Well, here's some history that they're not going to bother you with in history books in school. You should love history, especially his story. That's God's story of what he does with men. This book is called The Acts of the Apostles. And if we would say the whole name more often, we would appreciate it more than we may. It's not just Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. In 24 chapters, Luke wanted to give Theophilus a record of what took place after the ascension of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke was 24 chapters to give Theophilus an understanding of what Jesus Christ did before he was taken up. Saul was a Roman citizen born in Tarsus of Cilicia, that central Turkey across the Mediterranean Sea. He was born to a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, but he was brought up right in Jerusalem at the feet of one of its greatest teachers, Gamaliel. We find Saul for the first time at the end of chapter 7 in the beginning of chapter 8 when he kept the coats of those that stoned Stephen to death. So as a young man and identified as such by the Holy Spirit, he was already involved in the killing of Christians. And we find it told to us quite plainly as Luke, a companion of Paul, wanted to tell Theophilus where Saul was at every point that would be useful to him. If you look at chapter 7 and verse 58, those that stoned Stephen to death, they laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. 
And verse 1 of chapter 8, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Saul of Tarsus approved killing a man because he preached about the Lord Jesus Christ and actually saw Jesus standing in heaven at the right hand of God who had stood from his throne to receive Stephen, a martyr of the early church. Of all the men that should have known that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, it should have been the high priest. But they were blind to the truth. If they had known who they were dealing with, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us they would not have put the Lord of glory to death. But Saul of Tarsus got some authoritative written certification to go to Damascus, 250 miles to the north, the capital city of Syria. It is still a city there today. And as he journeyed and got near, as we've had read to us, a bright light shone upon him and drove him to the ground. The mighty enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ was on his face before the Lord Jesus Christ. In this vision that he had, he did see Jesus of Nazareth. He now had the qualifications to be an apostle. And he was going to get some more. To be an apostle, you have had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. A man named Ron Carpenter, who pretends to be the apostle of the World Redemption Center on airport road has never seen the lord jesus christ therefore he's not an apostle neither is his wife an apostleess they're just jokes and frauds in greenville just typical of the times in which we live the perilous times of the last days but this man was different i have appeared unto thee the lord jesus christ told him to make thee a minister there was an appearing Now he's going to see the Lord Jesus Christ again. You've already had read to you that he was in a trance in the temple and saw him. And he's going to go into Arabia and he's going to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ the gospel that he preached. And he certified that, that his gospel was not from men and that before God he was not lying when he said that he got it by revelation of Jesus Christ without flesh and blood. And when he went up to Jerusalem, even after three years, he only saw two apostles I hope you all know that there's more than 12 apostles. There's more than 13. Matthias may make 13, but James, the Lord's brother, makes 14. Paul makes 15. Matthias makes, and so forth. We, you know, we can go on. And Barnabas was an apostle, and they're called apostles in the New Testament, though they were not part of the original 12. He hears the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him. He responds, we aren't going to make a huge world of difference out of the word Lord. It could mean just sir, just a title of reverence like Sarah had for Abraham. It doesn't mean that he was admitting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ yet because he didn't even know who he was yet. Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, sir? Who art thou? And the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself that I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And to persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to persecute him. I hope you make that connection. When you have enemies because you're a Christian or there are enemies of this church, they are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His body. And He would say of us, more personally than He would even say of the Old Testament, touch not mine anointed. And so take comfort in that fact. He nears Damascus and he has this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trembling and astonished. And when you ever see the true Lord Jesus Christ and a true vision of Him, in the Word of God, you're going to tremble and be astonished. 
He is so far beyond what the world thinks of Jesus. He is not the effeminate, long-haired hermaphrodite that so many have on the walls of their homes. He doesn't look anything like that. That is a devilish Roman Catholic caricature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had short hair, was manly as the son of a carpenter, and when he's glorified, and he has been since 50 days, 40-some days after his resurrection... He is described in Revelation chapter 1. He's described in Revelation chapter 19. His hair is white as wool. His eyes are as a flaming fire. His feet are like burning brass. He has a golden girdle wrapped about his paps. He has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The sound of his voice is as the sound of many waters and the sound of a trumpet waxing louder and louder. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to get their picture of that long-haired John Lennon look-alike effeminate hippie that they put standing knocking at a door, they have to make their way to Revelation chapter 3.20 where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But that isn't the heart's door of sinners. Revelation 3.20 doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. It doesn't have a thing to do with sinners. That is Jesus Christ addressing one of his seven churches and telling them they need more fellowship with him rather than think that they are sufficient by themselves. But to get to Revelation 3, in order for them to paint that picture, they had to pass over chapter 1 where he is described in glorious perfection. And he doesn't look like John Lennon or Charles Manson or a hippie from San Francisco. Thank you, Lord. And I'll tell you, when he appeared to Saul of Tarsus, he wasn't seeing some long-haired hermaphrodite. He saw the Lord of glory, and he was struck blind, and he was on his face, and so was everyone with him. And they heard a voice, but they didn't hear a voice. And if you get confused about some of those differences, they heard the noise, but they didn't hear the words. John chapter 12 tells us that it was as the sound of thunder from heaven But Jesus understood exactly what was being said, and so did Saul of Tarsus. And look at this personal conversation. And I do not have time, and it is okay. But I want you to know, he called him by name. The first word is Saul. Don't you ever forget that God has inscribed your name in writing in the book of life before the foundation of the world. There is no new no new name written down in glory. Amen. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 together tell us the names were written there before the foundation of the world, which is when we were chosen in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1, which was when He promised us eternal life by covenant in Christ, before the foundation of the world. These things He did for us. Jesus Christ died. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, He shall see His seed. He knew that He had died for Saul of Tarsus. God knows us. And even though our faith might be overthrown at times, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18, preterism had overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. And what is that foundation for our salvation? The Lord knoweth them that are His. It's not that we know God, it's that He knows us. And the first word on the Damascus road is, Saul, praise God. If Saul was 30, 
The Lord has been waiting 31 years for this moment. Because he had separated Saul from his mother's womb to be an apostle. And all those times that he caused men and women to blaspheme and haul them into prison and tried to destroy the Christian religion, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that there was a day of reckoning coming when he would make a little introduction on the way to Damascus. And so he goes into Damascus, and he's blind, and he fasts three days and three nights without food or drink. Now at verse 10, Acts chapter 9 and verse 10, I'm going to read down to verse 18. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For, behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Amen. Amen. We have Saul of Tarsus now meeting Ananias, poor Ananias, when he gets the message that he's supposed to go meet Saul of Tarsus. He knows why Saul of Tarsus is in Damascus. He knows what authority he has, but isn't the Lord comforting? He's praying, he's blind, and he's already had a vision that a man with a particular name, Ananias, has come to help him. As I read and studied this passage, it reminded me that there are many Gideons in the history of the church of God. And Ananias was one of them, and Jonathan Crosby is another. And I thank God through Jesus Christ that he's so merciful at times. You know, Gideon, after the Lord had confirmed that Gideon was indeed to take the small army of Israel into battle, the Lord said to him, if you're still afraid, do you know what Gideon did? He raised his hand and said, yes, Lord. If you're still afraid, go down to a tent tonight and listen to a dream. And he goes down to that tent, and there are the enemies of Israel, the Midianites. And a man wakes up and says, whoa, did I just have a dream? 
I had a dream that a man named Gideon burst into our camp and whipped us. Gideon's outside that tent. Okay, Lord, I get the message now. Your ninth effort to help me, I will lead Israel into battle. Ananias was the same way. Lord, he's had a vision that a man named Ananias is coming in. He's blind. I've blinded him for you. You go in and take care of him. There's so many things that could be said about this here. Let's just revel in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is having a good time with Saul of Tarsus and with Ananias of Damascus and putting the two of them together. We have heard about Ananias in various places that his testimony and reputation before the Jews was very good. He was a devout man. He's called a disciple here. I want that verse. Verse 10, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus. Do not fret about the Lord finding you. You've never been lost. You know, sometimes you may feel lost, and you may be lost to your parents, or you may be lost to good sense, or you may be lost to this and that, but you're never lost to God. Did you know that he knew exactly where Saul of Tarsus was? Did you know that he knew the name of the street and the name of the house? Oh, yes. The Lord always knows that about you. Don't think that you're ever lost. Should you wonder how the Lord can get the gospel to a man in the desert? I think not, because the Ethiopian eunuch sure heard it. Should you wonder how the Lord can get you a spouse when there isn't one in sight? I wouldn't waste my time on such fretting. The Lord is able to take care of you. He knows how old you are. He knows your clock is ticking. And He has someone already prepared for you. And He is smiling in heaven at the introduction He's going to make. Behold, He prayeth. The effect of a vision of the true God should change men's lives. And it changed Saul of Tarsus. Did it change Isaiah in Isaiah 6? When he saw the Lord as king high and lifted up? Woe is me! Isaiah cried out, For I am a man of unclean lips. His guiltiness for poor speech was immediately visible and felt in the presence of a glorified God. How about Daniel in Daniel chapter 9? When he was a-praying and the man Gabriel came to give him an answer to his prayers. He's a praying man. Those are the men who've truly seen a vision of God. Prayer is a greater evidence of your relationship to God than any other single activity you can be involved in. It is spiritual communication with God, and if we're walking with Him, we'll be doing it. The woman, who had been a great sinner, was at the feet of Jesus, praying to Him. What kind comfort that God gave Ananias. And so there's an exchange between them, and God comforts Ananias to go and heal Brother Saul, from his blindness, and to give him the Holy Ghost. Now verse 18 tells us this, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He is healed immediately by Ananias. You young people tonight at your youth gathering are going to be considering the Great Commission, which has been planned for two months, and you just couldn't pull it off due to a variety of circumstances. But I want you to remember that when the Great Commission was given, and you know this, along with that commission to preach, was a God-bestowal of great 
and mighty signs and wonders to help convince their audiences. And so here we have Ananias with a great gift of healing, healing Paul's sight and giving him the Holy Ghost. But I want you to notice this. He received sight forthwith and arose. So, so Ananias has laid his hands on Saul of Tarsus in his chair. But he needs to arise now to do something. And it says so in Acts chapter 22. Arise and be baptized. And he arose and was baptized. Because in order to be baptized, you've got to get up so that we can put you down. We don't get baptized in chairs. It's hard to stand up from a chair underwater. But he arose to be baptized. Now that's just a small point. Here's a larger one. There are some that think anyone can baptize. They love to presume against God's officers because they have no respect for authority. And so they like to think that, hey, when my kids feel like getting baptized, I can just shove them underwater in the bathtub. I can take them out to the swimming pool, you know, the little plastic one that we blow up by hand, fill it with enough water and lie them in it, lay them in it, and baptize them. That's what some think. And one of the arguments they'll use is, Ananias was just a disciple and he baptized. I beg your pardon. Ananias was no ordinary disciple. Ananias was very likely an apostle. How do we know that? Because Ananias had the gift of healing. That by itself wouldn't prove it. But Ananias had the authority and the power of dispensing the Holy Ghost. Because in the previous chapter of Acts chapter 8, when Philip the Evangelist, which was the third ranking gift of the New Testament church, there are apostles, then there are prophets, then there are teachers. Those are the three gifts in order, as 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31 gives them to us. But in Acts chapter 8, we find out that Philip the Evangelist, which had that third gift, went to Samaria and baptized many in that city, but none of them received the Holy Ghost because he didn't have sufficient authority to give the Holy Ghost. So when those in Jerusalem had heard that there had been baptized converts in Samaria, it's all in chapter 8, all of this detail, they sent Peter and John to them. And Peter and John came and gave them the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Ananias just did that to Saul of Tarsus. Ananias was not just an ordinary disciple. Can you follow this? All all apostles, prophets, and evangelists are disciples. But not all disciples are apostles or prophets or evangelists. Can you handle that? That should make good sense to you. Let's go to verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. 
you get tired after three days without food or drink. If you've tried fasting like you should, you know that. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. This is our apostle. The Catholics, all 1.1 billion of them, can get excited about Pope Benedict XVI as he slobbers on himself, as he stands in his white pajamas and pretends to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ. They can get excited about him. We want to be excited about our beloved brother Paul. That's Peter's name for him in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to tell you a little bit about his training. I want to tell you about the master's degree that he got from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he got his master's degree in the strangest of places. And you've got to be able to read the whole New Testament to know what I'm telling you. If it wasn't for brother Ed reading Galatians chapter 1 to us, you wouldn't know what I'm about to tell you. But if you read this passage right here, he was in Damascus certain days. And then he was in Damascus many days to fulfill something. And in between, he was strengthened so that he could confound the Jews that were at Damascus. Did you notice that in my reading? Did you notice those things? What happened to him? Galatians 1. He went into Arabia. Now if there's one place you're going to go where, there, where the light of thinking has not arrived, it's Arabia. He went into the deserts of Arabia and he met the Lord Jesus Christ who taught him. Because in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, as our brother very aptly and very well explained, Paul was setting himself apart from false teachers and from the apostles in Jerusalem that he didn't need any of them for the gospel that he preached because he had received it from Jesus Christ. When did he receive it? When he went into Arabia. When he was strengthened in the middle of his three years at Damascus. When he went to Jerusalem, if he had been three years in Damascus, would the church at Jerusalem know he had been converted? Absolutely. Of course. Did Ananias at Damascus know that Saul of Tarsus was on his way from Jerusalem to get men and women Christians and take them back and put them in prison? Was that knowledge commonly being circulated among the Christians? Well, why when he got to Jerusalem later in this chapter did no one know of his conversion? Because the three years that he was in Damascus were largely taken up with his master's degree in the deserts of Arabia with the Lord Jesus Christ where he was strengthened. So that he, when he came back to preach in Damascus, 
He confounded the Jews, and they went about to kill him. And that's what our opponents always do. You know, that's what our opponents have always done. They don't sit down and reason through the Scriptures because that's not something they like doing. They just want to kill the messenger. Isn't that a terrible attitude to have toward truth? If you hear a man preaching something new from the Bible, and you don't know the Bible that well, and it's putting things into context for you, you ought to give him a hearing instead of just wanting to stone him. Things fell into fat. Things fell into place fast for Saul of Tarsus when he met the Lord Jesus. Now, brethren, when you read through your New Testament, I hope that you will slow down enough that when you come to 1 Corinthians 11 and the Apostle Paul is presenting the rules for how to observe the Lord's Supper, he, re- he says, That which I also received of the Lord Jesus, deliver unto you. Because, see, Saul of Tarsus wasn't at the Last Supper. But he didn't need to be. Because the Lord Jesus Christ taught him by personal revelation. Anyway, just a little... You say, our apostle didn't go to seminary. Oh, he went to seminary, and he didn't have some man teaching him. No flesh and blood was teaching him. He didn't get his gospel by flesh and blood. I wasn't taught it by man, and I certify to you, I got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious testimony. Thank you, Lord. There's so many things. What boldness he had. How long did he take after his conversion to go to the synagogue and get started? Straightway. He didn't wait at all. And that's what ought to happen when we're converted. If we're truly converted, we're going to change. And how long is the change going to take? Now. Whatever we're told to do, I want to do that. And I want to do it right now. If we're going to be like Saul of Tarsus and like Paul, and you say, well, nobody can measure up to him. He said he's a pattern for everyone that believes on Jesus Christ. We should understand that the great grace that was shown to Saul of Tarsus and the change in his life and the abundance of grace that gave him faith and love has occurred to us as well. But are we allowing that grace to be bestowed upon us in vain? He didn't. The grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. 1 Corinthians 15.10 And that is what we ought to do. And Lord, help us to do that. We are now down to verse twenty. Six, you know that event that we just covered uh, about being let down in a basket. Did you know that? You know that's that's a pretty humbling event for this mighty apostle and this former enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ to have to get out of town in a basket. You know it's bad enough to have to walk and not take an airplane or have a limo ride the 250 miles back to Jerusalem, but he had to come out of town in a basket. And it's noted again on his resume sent to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 through 33, that he was let down in a basket. But we come now to verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Three years in Damascus and they don't know he's been converted when he's been preaching wide open, full bore. No, he hasn't. He only did that certain days before he went into Arabia. And then he came back after many days had been fulfilled. What many days? The three years of Galatians chapter 1. Many days had to be fulfilled. That's how I believe the Word of God. 
I believe that there's one author, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Different men put it down from different perspectives, but all of it together, we have the truth God wants us to have Amen. about Saul of Tarsus. They were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Can you imagine what it would have been like? They had dead relatives because of Saul of Tarsus. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Even the apostles didn't know about all that had gone on in Damascus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. That's a confirming testimony of Saul of Tarsus that he was, he was worthy of being with them at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now he gets to a new city. And this is not any ordinary city. This is the center of the Jews' religion. But he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. Grecians were Jews who spoke Greek and who were likely, because of choosing the Greek language, these were Hellenized Jews. That's the historical word. They're called Grecians in the Bible. They were Jews that spoke Greek, and they likely were enamored by the philosophers of the Greeks and their love of wisdom. But it didn't matter, because remember, he had the best of training at the feet of Gamaliel, and he took them apart, and he disputed against them. And here again, we find out what happens when Paul preaches. Some men love him, and the rest want to kill him. And you know, when we preach election from Ephesians 1 and the other places in Romans 8, God's predestinating purpose, you know, many people hate us for it. But it's what Paul preached, and we love him for it. And when the Gentiles heard that gospel in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Who believes the gospel? Those that were ordained to eternal life. And those Gentile converts in Acts 13, when they heard Paul preach, they glorified the word of the Lord, being thankful that it included them. The cattle of the Gentiles. Verse 30 tells us, which when the brethren knew, there's the church members at Jerusalem, they loved this new convert, they were so excited, the greatest enemy of Christianity was now an able spokesman and disputer with even the Grecians, they brought him down to Caesarea, that's a port city, and sent him forth to Tarsus, which is back across the Mediterranean Sea, to his home city of Tarsus of Cilicia. Just a little note here, and I've told you this before, but whenever you see the words down and up, it's never the way you think, so don't look at an atlas and be looking north and south. It is never that. Down and up is an altitude. And that makes even more sense, doesn't it, than the way we use the words. It's in altitude. Why? Because Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. To go down to a port city, at port city, how high are you above sea level? Think deeply. You're at sea level. So you're going down. And this, this language is used by Luke all the time, even when he's going due north, like to Caesarea, is going down even though it's due north, because in altitude it was. Saul of Tarsus, still called Saul, is in Tarsus of Cilicia, because we need to leave him for a while and take up Peter and have the conversion of Cornelius. But then in Acts chapter 11, 
There are some men that travel as far north as Antioch of Syria, and there the disciples are called Christians for the first time. And Barnabas sees a great work that needs help. And so Barnabas grabs himself a ship ticket and goes over to Tarsus of Cilicia and says, Paul, we've got work to do. Hauls him back over to Antioch of Syria. That becomes their home church. And so you open up Acts 13, and there was in the church that was at Antioch certain teachers, Saul, Barnabas, and others. And the Holy Ghost said, send them out. I have a work for them to do. And Paul goes into the great work that God had for him with Barnabas on the first trip. I want the 31st verse and we'll end. You can handle verses 32 through 43. The Apostle Peter, he's passing throughout all quarters and he meets a man named Aeneas who has been bedridden for eight years with the palsy, which is a contraction for paralysis. And he says, Aeneas, in verse 34, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. That bed hasn't been made for eight years. Now get up and get out of it and make it. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. You young people remember tonight, the commission to preach included the commission to perform mighty signs and wonders. Otherwise, no one would have listened to an uneducated, poor-speaking fisherman from Galilee. And then there's Tabitha, who's also called Dorcas. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she had done, and it tells us all about the widows that she took care of. Visiting the widows is more than sending them an email. Visiting the widows that were in need was visiting them in their affliction. She had made them coats and garments. And all those widows were standing around weeping because this was a terrible and drastic loss for their cause because this woman was so committed to taking care of them. Paul, Peter put them out. He got down on his knees and he prayed. If you need an example of someone getting down on their knees and praying, you can read about it right here in Acts chapter 9. And then he turns to her and says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and sees Peter and sets up. He takes her by the hand, leads her out and says, Is this the one you were worried about? And many turned to the Lord from a fisherman. Praise the Lord. Now, Peter was getting pretty experienced at this because Acts chapter 3 and 4 are full of him healing a man lame for 40 years from his mother's womb. I want verse 31. Saul of Tarsus is now quiet. He's in Tarsus, a seaport in central Turkey, called Cilicia then. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Let me go back to this morning, to Psalm 11 and verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You might have objected to that. When civil society is in an upheaval, and there are threats to safety, like there were when Saul of Tarsus was running wild. The churches didn't have rest. I mentioned 1 Timothy 2 on how we're to pray for peace and quietness. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 7.26 about the present distress at Corinth. It had been fearful 
to live with Saul of Tarsus alive and running around, putting men in prison and putting them to death. But now they had rest. You know why I'm going through all that? Because I want to tell you something about this church. We are at rest. We have no excuse. There is no present distress. We just live in the perilous times of the last days. We have great temptations around us, but we don't have persecution. Not like they did. There's no one going to prison for the gospel in the upstate. We are at rest, so we meet that qualification. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, the very places Jesus had told his apostles to go in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But it says here, and were edified. Edified means built up, established, strengthened. An edifice is a building. To edify something is to build it up. The churches, churches, we're a church. I get excited about this verse. Then had the churches rest and were edified. Are we being built up? Are we growing? Are we strengthening? Not in numbers, in quality. This is edification. This is what occurs in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then it goes on in Ephesians 4, for verses 11 through 15, the work of the ministry to build up the church. And then the 16th verse is that by which every joint and every part contributes to the edifying of itself in love. A church should be improving in quality. The very first passage I opened with this morning was Hebrews chapter 10, 23 through 25, that we are to consider one another, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and we are to provoke each other to love and to good works and to exhort one another. And if that is being done, a church will be edified. It will improve in quality. It will improve and grow in spirituality. It will keep the commandments of God better. We're at rest. Let's use that rest. There may come a time where we're persecuted or our children are persecuted. But right now, we're at rest. Let's edify one another. Now, we're about to have a break between services and use that break to edify one another. And walking in the fear of the Lord. They could have a lifestyle that did everything the Lord wanted them to do. They did not have to be afraid of the authorities or Saul of Tarsus. We can walk in the fear of the Lord. Everything we do can be what a man would do who truly fears the Lord and knows that he's going to give an account to him for everything that he says, thinks, and does. Not only did they walk in the fear of the Lord, but they were also walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. They were walking in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit is a choice. You are alive in the Spirit by regeneration. To walk in the Spirit is your choice to do those things that please the Spirit of God. That is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. These churches at rest edified each other and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort. That's the encouraging internal strength of the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts, that we are the sons of God, that causes us to cry, Abba, Father. And so these churches at rest, building each other up, walked in the fear of the Lord, had a lifestyle and a conversation in the world that was pleasing to God, walking in the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Ghost, then you have increase. We're multiplied. 
Because men see changed lives. Lives full of love, joy, peace, and so forth. And they ask a reason of the hope that is within you. And you give it to them with meekness and fear. That verse right there, I love the whole chapter. I hope you know I do. But if I had to say there was one verse more important than any other verse, especially for you, it's right there. Verse 31. We're at rest. Are we edifying one another? Are we walking in the fear of the Lord? Are we walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost? Let's do those things, and then we'll leave it up to the Lord how much he multiplies us. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.